What's up, founders, and welcome back to the In Demand podcast, where we talk all about how to reach your very first 1 million in ARR. I'm your host, Asia Arangio, and I'm the founder of Demand Maven, where we work with early stage SaaS companies on reaching their very first growth milestones. Let's do this. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I am super pumped to chat about today's topic. Today, we are going to discuss all of the mistakes. I'm not going to say all the mistakes because there are a lot of mistakes, but I will say the most common mistakes. I see a lot of amateur interviewers, founders, product managers, marketing managers, you name it. These are the mistakes that many people make whenever they are conducting customer research. And I wanted to come to you today with a list of things, of course, to be looking out for. There are very, very strong chance that you are making some of these mistakes in your interviews. I want you to walk away today with a sense of feeling like you've got this and also you can start to see the patterns and you can start to see this in your own work. And then hopefully some strategies for how you can eliminate this entirely. Uh, Okay, so we're just going to start with the very first one. It's going to sound really obvious, but I think you'd be surprised at how common this is. And it is not having any clear goals for the research in the first place. Something triggered you wanting to do this research, whether it's uh, you want to understand how this particular feature should be designed, built, rolled out. You maybe want to discover some problems that customers have that can be translated into product value. We call that product discovery. Maybe it's you want to validate a particular segment of the market or unvalidate them. Like maybe actually you need to be pivoting and focusing somewhere else. Could also just be general insights gathering. If you're in marketing, maybe it's really to understand what are some campaign or content gaps that you can create. I mean, it like there's no end to the amount of things that you can do from a qualitative perspective, right? It could even be maybe you're conducting a survey or maybe there's a really specific segment that isn't performing as well that maybe could. Maybe you're not conducting as many or converting as many free trials into paying customers, or maybe you've got a set like a lot of churn all of a sudden. Either way, there's something that is triggering this research or you wanting to do it, wanting like feeling this need that you need to be talking to customers in some kind of way. And While there is a trigger, a trigger does not necessarily equate to a goal. So a goal for the research is going to sound, you know, again, like semantics here. But just because the trigger started this process of you wanting to go out and conduct a research does not necessarily mean that that is like the literal actual goal. So for example, I'm going to give you an example. Let's say all of a sudden there's a lot of churn and you're like, hmm, I maybe might need to conduct some research. The churn was the trigger, right? Here's where the goal can actually look very different depending on maybe different contexts and scenarios. And this is why it's really, really, really important to sit down and really think about like, what is my actual goal? Like, what am I actually trying to get to? So let's say like there's a whole bunch of churn. Your goals could be, it could run the gamut, but it could be, I want to understand the triggers for churn. I want to understand who churns and why. I want to understand the full context of this churn. I want to understand what features are missing from the product that are causing this churn. 
And you'll notice that each of these are things that could certainly be true about this research that we're, that we're about to conduct. But what matters here is that whatever your hypothesis is, that you have a goal that's correlated to it. So if you have a general hunch that says, you know what, we've got a lot of churn, I think it's because of this, then your goal is going to naturally be correlated to whatever that hypothesis is. What we don't want to do is we don't want to say, oh, crap, we got to conduct a bunch of interviews. And then you go and like you do a bunch of outreach to the people. And then like you're like, but you're not really clear on like, what were you trying to get out of this? And the other part to keep in mind, too, is that you're you're goals are ultimately going to influence how you approach the research in the first place. It's going to influence who you select, the questions that you ask, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Goals and hypotheses are almost always correlated. And then, of course, a trigger really just encourages you starting that qualitative gathering process. But I just want to make sure that you actually sit down and you say and state very clearly and succinctly, this is my goal for the research. I'm going to give you an example of a goal statement that, that I have used countless times, but my formula is very simple. I am going to, you can include your hypothesis, of course, but I believe churn is because of the quality of customers and possibly the product value, ongoing product value, ongoing product discovery. And so I'm going to conduct customer research until I arrive at, let's say, three to four very clear strategic priorities within product and possibly some some of like the acquisition and targeting strategy maybe on the marketing side. You don't have to make it so so specific if you're if you're more general. So maybe your goal is to generally understand why do people churn? So then maybe your goal would then be I'm going to conduct interviews until I have the top 5 to 10 reasons, deep deep insights, not just, you know, high level, but like the the deep insights for why people ultimately churn from the product. And then, of course, you can get even more specific and you can say, I'm only going to do this on qualified customers, which is actually my next piece of advice here. So the next mistake that I see a lot of people make is they're interviewing the wrong people. And this also kind of seems like like a like a does scenario. But I was working with a company recently and it's, it's sneaky is the thing. And I, I want to give ourselves compassion and grace here. Like, it's not like we're out here, like doing this wrong on purpose or, you know, making these like mistakes intentionally. It's so sneaky and it's so tough to like to see for yourself unless someone else is kind of coming in who's who's just conducted way more research maybe than you have in the past, which I've certainly had my fair share. But it's it's interviewing the wrong people, picking the wrong segments for the research and for the goals that you ultimately have. So we just talked about setting your goals for this research. Now, the, based on our goals, we now need to talk to the right people. But I was, I was working with a company back in the day, and they had done this Jobs to be on research, which was great. And it's so, so, so rare to see companies do this, which I was like so excited but it was interesting because strategically speaking, they had aligned around one particular ICP. And this ICP was the ICP that they were betting the whole business on. Like, this is the ideal customer profile that we believe in, that this is going to be the thing that makes us, you know, get to a million plus or whatever it was that their goals were. And I was like, okay, great. Yep. I'm with you. I, I can see that, you know, based off of our own analysis and from, from everything that, that we've discussed so far. But when I looked at the jobs to be done research, it was on this whole other ICP that wasn't actually the primary ICP. And I remember thinking, wait, did I miss something? Like, I thought we were focused on ICP number one, not ICP number three. It turns out the, f- the founder and the product leader were like, oh, that's actually a really good point. We 
we kind of just assumed that, you know, like this particular ICP would be similar or adjacent enough to ICP number one. I was like, ah, yeah, no, we can't make that assumption. Even if even if we're kind of correct, we it's still far more dangerous to make the assumption. And if you think about the effort and energy that it takes to conduct research versus maybe say building out a whole go-to-market strategy that might not actually align with the ICP based on jobs we've done research that doesn't actually match the ICP, then you know, like you're probably going to want to do the research <laughs> instead of spending all this money, energy, effort, and time building in a direction that doesn't actually make sense. So all that to say, make sure that when you conduct your research that it's very clear who the target audiences are going to be and also that that aligns with your ultimate goals and hypothesis of the research because if it doesn't then it's not it's it, it's not going to like you can't make it make sense like it's just not the math ain't mathing on that one <laughs> so you're going to have you're going to have a hard time and the thing about it too is like you're not going to it's not going to feel like that immediately it, it could literally take you 6 months to a year plus before you realize that a lot of the assumptions that you had been making about this particular segment of customer or whatever has triggered a whole bunch of feature builds that don't actually contribute to growth. Like, I mean, if qualitative research is the root of how we think about what value we can provide and how we connect with customers, and you can imagine, I get, it takes a long time before the pain rears its ugly head, but when it does, it's like, it's frustrating as hell. So I just want to I just want to get ahead of that for you guys and just recommend that just make sure that who you're talking to actually matches the goals that you have. For example, don't talk to churned customers if you're trying to solve the free trial activation rate. Don't don't speak to strangers who have never bought your product hoping that they're going to tell you what makes your product special, right? Like again, prioritize customers for that one. Uh, these are the types of things that we have to make sure that we're keeping in mind. Once we get into more, I would say complex scenarios, we start looking at including different segments of customer qualitative research, but making sure that we always have a control, which is also a little bit different. But so for example, it might make sense actually to get feedback about the product, even though maybe the person who's giving feedback about it isn't an actual customer. But more so from a psychological sense, maybe uh, they can't ever tell you what makes your product special, but they can at least tell you what are their impressions? How do they react to this? This is really interesting in direct contrast and comparison to customer research of people that you know are valuable. So I will say there are certainly circumstances where you would include segments or parts of the research that might not seem like it aligns, but it actually does ultimately help you accomplish your goals. But I'll, I'll bookmark that one and come back to it later. Okay, the next one. Talking way too much in interviews. I, I was conducting a customer discovery research with a founder whom I love. I, like, I think that they're absolutely amazing. And I would not say that they did anything specifically wrong, wrong. Like if this wasn't like a, oh, it botched the whole research or anything like that. But what's so interesting was there was a very clear difference in the types of responses that this founder got versus when I interviewed the customer. And the difference is I really don't talk as much in interviews. And I actually train and coach my team on not talking too much. <laughs> too much talking gives way too much bias. Of course, you, wanna, you want the interviewee, the person that you're speaking to, to feel comfortable with you. You want them to feel like they can tell you anything. 
But what I noticed was the founder that we worked with did a lot of talking. Like we're talking like 30 to 40% of the interview was actually the founder just talking. And what we what we found was what ended up happening was it did make the customer feel comfortable for sure, but what it was but they also did a lot of agreeing. So there's lots of agreeing and not a whole lot of nope, I disagree and here's why. And and this is where talking too much in your interviews, you might find that you end up with a lot of camaraderie at the end, but not any actual momentum in terms of insight to help you really understand like, what are the gaps? What's missing? Like, what can we do that's better or whatever critical information that you're hoping to get? And yes, it's true. People do have to feel comfortable with you to give you critical feedback. But what is not necessarily true is you do not have to, you know, just, you know, overwhelm them with, your story and like your feedback and like your thoughts because that's not really the point of the, of the of the interview. And the other trick to this too is if you end up talking too much, you end up not getting enough feedback from the customer. And so you've got maybe 45 minutes, an hour maybe with a customer. You want to maximize that time as much as humanly possible. And there's really simple things that you can do to make people feel comfortable. But generally speaking, we want to try not to talk too much and what I mean by that is, like, we're not here necessarily to tell a bunch of stories and to wax poetic about, you know, all the details of, like, certain things, unless, of course, the customer asks. But we just want to make sure that when we ask questions, we're not telling a whole side story and then asking a question and telling a whole another side story and then asking a question, talking way too much. So it's really important to stick to your questions and then using prompts and then uh, responses and feedback loops to make it feel very easy and comfortable. But we just want to make sure we don't get stuck in like storytelling while we're uh, interviewing and or um, getting like way super sidetracked. I mean, yes, like some of that stuff like helps a lot and it is good to do. um, But I find a lot of the times when it comes to research at scale, that can actually end up feeling like if half the interview is you talking, it's not going to give you ultimately what you need. Okay, next is asking leading questions. This one is tough. This one's super tough because the way that this shows up is very subtle. And you can research and, you know, you can you can go and research like types of leading questions. There's all types of like there's leading and loaded questions. There's there's all types of like different bias present in leading questions and the types of those. But what I want to make sure is really clear is a leading question is ultimately you asking a question with a clear path in the question. And that path is something that you are either making an assumption about or you're hoping that the customer will reply back to. So uh, some typical examples, like like if you go and research this, you're going to see, you know, every article says the same thing. It's going to say like, oh, here's one type of leading question. It's like, how amazing was our product? Tihi, lol. And then that's obviously a leading question because you're, you're asking the person, tell me how amazing I am, but we're making the assumption that we're amazing. <laughs> and we are hoping that the person will reply back and say, oh yeah, you guys are amazing. Here's how amazing you are on a scale of zero to 10. I would pick 11. Those are like the typical types of leading questions that you're going to see in a lot of articles. Here's how it actually shows up in interviews. So the way that a leading question actually shows up in an interview is it's, it's, there's really two types that I find. It's usually in response to what someone is saying and we're asking a follow-up question, but the follow-up question is 100% leading. Like, we're kind of just like stabbing in the dark. Like, we're taking stabs in the dark and like we're making a huge, overwhelming assumption. And then the other type of leading question that pops up a lot, a lot 
is someone gives you a piece of feedback and then you reply back with, oh, was it this? Like you're like, like you're, you almost like jump to a solution and you answer with a solution or you, or you answer with a, like what you think it is and not a general question that helps you unpack it. I'm going to give you more specific examples. So this is actually one, a couple, I'm going to obviously anonymize this to death because, you know, confidentiality and all that. But there's, these are actual questions and scenarios that came up for real in some of our research. So whenever I work with new researchers and if uh, every researcher comes to the table with different experiences, some have much more research experience than others, but even ones who have more research experience, sometimes leading questions can, can sneak in there. And so I, my job is to parse them out. But one of the questions could be something like someone, a, a customer has mentioned a problem. And this problem could be any type of problem. It could be like a struggling moment. It could be like a problem with a product specifically. But, but they have said, yep, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. And a leading question could be, oh, was it, was it because of XYZ? Or, and XYZ can be literally anything. It could be like, oh, was it because of your mobile phone? Or like, was it because of this? Or what? And it's almost like you're like stabbing in the dark in a way. Like you're just like, oh, was it, was it that? And this is a leading, this is a leading question for many, many reasons, but it's also, and it's a huge assumption. And, and it also is a path. Like you have now laid down a path and it's now up to the customer to say yes or no. And you're going to hope and pray that they are honest with you and also that they remember. And this is where we have to really be careful. So a better way to have approached this would be someone, someone says, some type of problem, whether it's a struggling moment or an issue with a product or a feature or what have you, the proper way to reply without the leading question would be, you mentioned it was this. Tell me more about that. And then you pause and you stop talking. You don't say any other words. And that's going to feel really awkward for you, uh, especially if you're used to clarifying your answers or giving examples and answering the question for the customer, which is another huge, huge, huge thing. Uh, but that's an example of a leading question. And the other way that it pops up, and this is this is even more subtle, but sometimes sometimes customers will like they will save feedback and then we reply back with that follow-up question that's very clearly a leading question. And sometimes the other way is the way that we ask questions, like this is an example of a leading question that we use actually in our research. But when did you know that our product was the right solution for you? Technically a leading question because we are making the assumption that the customer believes that this is the right solution for them. Now, here's what's really interesting is sometimes leading questions can actually be extremely valuable because depending on the way that they're worded, they can give you a very interesting, robust response, something that you might not have ever expected. If we're if we don't use them correctly, though, we can end up with bias. And that's what we we want to avoid as much bias as we possibly can. It's impossible to eliminate all bias, but we want to reduce as much of our own self-induced bias as much as possible. But when did you know our product was the right solution for you is a question that we actually use in, in the context of a very positive interview. If we had an interview where the customer was not certain about the product, or they flat out just had a lot of issues with it, weren't big fans. Asking this question, one, feels very weird and awkward, but it's also like, a well, I didn't know that the right solution was for me. Clearly, I'm telling you this. And so it creates a really interesting dynamic. And sometimes that gives you really valuable feedback. Other times, though, it's a leading question that just has no place in the interview. 
Whenever, though, we use leading questions, it's usually within a particular context, but still technically a leading question. Leading questions are interesting because they're so subtle. They're hidden in our language, and the best way to identify them is, well, first of all, if you're recording your interviews, go through the order a transcript, go through the transcript, and go and try to find all of the questions that you asked. So I want you to look for the things that you specifically asked in your interview. And I want you to see how many leading questions you asked in an interview. And you can always tell because it's always when the customer says something and then you reply back with a, with a follow-up question that is like way out of left field, totally out of context, and you're you're either making an assumption or you're laying a path and you're you're doing one or the other. Now the difference here is uh, if you ask a more open-ended question, so like you're trying to get more neutral feedback. So for example, tell me more about that or how how did that happen? Those are those are not leading questions. They are they are truly open, relatively neutral questions. But you can always tell a leading question because you're kind of inserting an answer for them. And that's how you know that it's leading. But like I said, it's extremely subtle and it's it's usually it's it's usually like really painful to find them. <laughs> and then you start to wonder how much did I bias this interview? And that's also not a great feeling. But anyway, watch out for leading questions. They're they're usually pretty easy to identify if you think about it in terms of assumptions or paths. If you're doing either of those in the question, probably leading. But if you're much more open about it and creating more opportunity for the customer to choose their own path, then probably not a leading question, probably okay. Next, this is a huge pet peeve of mine. Honestly, all of these are are pretty frustrating, but this one is real bad. And I think this is actually the one that I think most founders in particular fall prey to. I think folks in product I think are a little bit more trained to hear these, but I think especially founders, founders in particular are very, very susceptible to this. So if you are a founder, perk your ears, take a note, listen to this. It's accepting vague responses. Vague responses are the most frustrating thing (laughs) to hear in an interview. And I think you'll find that really good interviewers are dogged about asking follow-up questions and clarifying statements. So for example, a vague response. So let's say you're asking a question, you know, what was the most valuable thing about the product? And the customer says, oh, it was so easy and it was so user-friendly and it saved me time. Those are the top three most vague responses. They mean absolutely nothing. Think about it. Easy could mean a million different things. Easy how? Like easy in that it was only like a couple of clicks, easy in that the flow was really simple, like easy, like in what way was it easy? Was it easy because it was easy to sign up? Like easy means a million different things. Ease in general has so many different connotations and contexts. So our job as the interviewer is to clap back and be like, tell me more about easy. How was it easy? And we're not going to assume it was easy because that would be a leading question. So we're not going to say, Oh, was it easy because of the workflow? No, 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 that's leading. Don't lead them. You're not You're not the customer. You're not there to answer their question for them. Your job is to facilitate, to be like Virgil through Dante's Inferno, but without the abandonment part. Like that's your job. 
And it's not to answer it for them. And it's certainly not to just accept and assume that you know what it means. So when you hear vague answers, the most, like the, I would say the top three, I'm going to say are easy, user-friendly. I'm going to give you more actually than, than three. Easy, user-friendly, flexible, saves time, fast, seamless. None of these words mean anything. You need to perk your ears up whenever you hear those words and dig deeper. But here's the other thing. The real gag is anytime a customer pretty much uses any adjective is probably a sign to dig deeper. What I mean by that is adjectives are like the, you know, it was easier, it was faster, it was better, it was stressful, it was annoying, it was confusing, it was flexible, it was seamless, blah, blah, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Pretty much any adjective indicates a need to dig deeper. Tell me more about that. How is it easy? How is it faster? How is it better? How is it seamless? What does seamless mean in this context? What does stressful mean in this context? I ask that a lot, actually. What does X mean in this context? And I think you will be surprised at what people reply with. And the other thing to keep in mind, too, is that human brains are extremely lazy. We're so lazy. Like, our brains are just wired for the shortest path at all time. And when we take a moment and we actually think about, damn, like what did they actually just say? Like what did they really just say? We realize we don't know. And we're like, damn, we you know, really wish I had taken that moment to dig deeper into that because it might've actually led you to an insight that you just didn't even know that you really needed. Either positioning or messaging gold. Sometimes it's marketing channel gold. Sometimes it's product marketing gold. Sometimes it's just product gold, period. I mean, it it really runs the gamut, but you really won't ever know until you dig deeper. What we find is adjectives are mostly used when talking about struggling moments and frustrations, both when trying to look for a solution and then also later when using the product itself. And of course, there's opportunity in between. We also hear a lot of adjectives when describing using the product specifically. And this, again, will highlight areas for improvement and also suss out some potential product and feature ideas, which I know if you are technical-minded, you're going to love. If you are product-minded, you're also going to love. But I think the, the goal here, though, is that you train your ear to listen for what is vague and also to listen for adjectives. That's your signal. If someone is describing something, and, and they're, they're going to slip it in, and it's going to be really fast, and it's going to be hard to catch. But they're going to say things like, oh, yeah, and it was painful. And then I blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, oh, wait, 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 let's back up. What was painful? How was it painful? Like, those are the types of adjectives that just kind of like slip in in the conversation. And I want you to be paying attention to those. And, and if you take nothing else from this recording today, from this podcast episode today, don't accept them. I think, I think a lot of founders and, and interviewers and researchers are afraid to kind of push the customer a little bit in the interview. But the thing is, is our job is to understand them. And I think if we position our interviews as almost like it's a documentary, then we have a little bit more leeway to dig a little bit deeper and to ask those questions and not feel weird or awkward about them. Because I know a lot of people can sometimes feel kind of awkward doing that. But don't accept the vague answers. They contain a lot of insight for you. They contain a lot of information for you. And if you spend the time, I promise you, you will unearth gold, absolute gold. Okay, the next one. This one is controversial. <laughs> Maybe it's not so controversial, but it is from the work that I've conducted over the last 
I don't know, almost six years now, this, this pops up frequently and it always surprises people. If you can help it, don't incentivize your interview. But I'm gonna put an asterisk there because some interviews do need to be incentivized. So for example, inactive trials and churned canceled users, customers, those people need to be incentivized in some kind of way. If you've lost them, it's really hard to make them come back and want to talk to you. Offering a very generous gift card of like 50 bucks plus, it could be 75 to 100 to 150. I find if we want to talk to churned customers, 100 plus always gets their attention. I It's actually really rare to get people to say like, no, I'm, I'm out. Offering like a very healthy incentive. Now you don't have to conduct thousands of those. You only have to conduct like five to 10 to really get good feedback. But everyone else, don't offer the incentive. Paying customers, don't offer an incentive. There are some industries where you might need to expect to incentivize, such as e-commerce. This is actually, this is is an industry or a vertical that um, is actually really surprising because, and I think it's because they incentivize their research that that they in turn expect incentivization. Is that a word? Um, They in return expect an incentive because they often incentivize their research. So I find if you are targeting the e-commerce space on the B2B SaaS side, then you might need to potentially offer an incentive of some kind. But it's much better to not, actually. The quality of feedback is going to be 100% better, I promise you. I have have personal experience with this, both on incentivizing research, and then the majority of our research is uncentivized. So we do not offer an incentive unless we're talking to absolute strangers, so customer discovery or we are doing turn slash cancellation research and those, and also inactive users who signed up but didn't really do much. Those are the people that you wanna incentivize. Everyone else, try to see if you can conduct your research without incentivizing, with of course the understanding that some verticals just may need to be incentivized. E-commerce tends to be a really common one, but if you can help it, try not to. The quality will will just be shocking. And in the same project once for uh, for, for a client, we conducted incentivized research and unincentivized research for customers. And I kid you not, all like 100% of the incentivized research, most of it trash. I mean, it's so and it's so tough to explain in all the ways of how that this was not as as good, but it's just really clear that the people who are there with are really there for the incentive and they're not there for anything else. So they don't want to answer your questions. They don't want to dig deep. They want to get off of this call as fast as possible and get that gift card. Or they want to get off the call and like get the reward or whatever it is. They don't want to talk to you. And it's really obvious that they don't want to talk to you. And it's really tough as the interviewer because your job is to get meaningful insight. And if the only insight that you can get is this person didn't really want to talk to me, I mean, it's a giant waste of time and a waste of cash on literally everyone's part. The only person who really gets anything out of it is really the like the the person at the end of the day who's being interviewed. And even then, I would say I would argue that you know not really. So it ends up creating this lose lose scenario. Whereas with unincentivized interviews, you're really only going to talk to people who actually care, and also who, if they don't necessarily care about you, they care about them enough to want to talk to you to give you feedback about like, here's what I need, here's what my needs are. But this is actually a really good sign because anyone who wants to spend time telling you about how you can make your product better 
probably people who are far more invested in it and also the outcome, the value that they're getting out of the product than probably anyone else. Even if they are critical, and I think that this is this is the key point too, even critical customers, people who are very vocal about how frustrated they are, even that is still extremely valuable because what you're getting is someone who is paying you money, agreeing to spend time with you to tell you about how to make it better and are giving you the honest truth about it. This is actually gold. You want this. You want this all day long. Of course, you want to hear about the raving fans. And do you want to hear about the raving fans and like all of the things about them that make them a raving fan? Like you want to hear all the context, like the contextual things about them that make them very special and unique and how do they differ from the people who are maybe more critical and more vocal. But you you want both ultimately. And ideally, you don't have to pay them to get that feedback. Ideally. There are some scenarios that you might have to. But generally speaking, if you can avoid it, go for it. And if you find that you can't avoid it, then two things. It's probably the vertical or the industry of some kind, or there's something very much missing in the overall customer experience that's making them feel like it's just not worth their time and that they need to have something in return. That's usually the sign of a disgruntled customer base, but I'll bookmark that one for a future episode. Okay. Incentivizing interviews, like I said, if you can help it, don't do it. The last one is the one that I actually don't talk about much, but it's something that I am noticing is a very big need. And it is the lacking of feedback loop after the interviews. So for example, you conduct some interviews and maybe you're a UX researcher or maybe you're a product manager or product lead, or maybe you're a founder or a marketer and you have embarked on this journey of doing research, of doing interviews, of talking to the customer. And you've got your goal and like you've got your questions, like you know what you're going to do. You conduct those interviews and then you send the notes to someone. You know, most, most people I find, you know, create like a bullet point list and like, okay, here are the insights. Sometimes some people will create like a presentation, but then there's, you know, it gets kicked over the fence, but then there's not really anything that happens after that. And what I think is really, really, really crucial. If you do any research and if you want to make the case for continuing to do research, the goal here is to really have two tiers of presentation to the executive level, leadership, the rest of the team, wherever you're at in the org. Two things need to happen. The first is the executive summary, of course, has to happen to your executive leadership. So if you're not producing executive summaries, this is like the one page your highlights, like here's what you need to know you know, busy CEO, busy CMO, busy CPO, these busy people, VPs, whatever, they need like the bullet point list. But for everyone else, for everyone who is adjacent to you, who's on your team, who reports to you, there needs to be a retrospective of here's what we heard, here's what we learned, here's real quotes, real voice of customer quotes, because if you listen to me or if you've ever heard me speak, you know I'm going to tell you to record and transcribe like, like so you have a source of truth. It is the real voice of customer. It's a source of truth. You need those quotes and you need that presentation. And this is the type of evangelizing of the research that needs to happen after the research is actually conducted. And many teams skip this. And some of y'all think you're too small to do this. And I'm going to disagree with you 100%. Because even if you are a team of four 
and you're a solo founder and maybe you've got two engineers and like a content writer. I'm like, I know there are tons of y'all out there that are, that have a structure like this. Even if you, you conduct this research, you still need to do this retrospective with everyone. Engineers need to know what, like, what is all of this for? Why am I building this? What are customers saying about it? And also we need to challenge our assumptions here. And then that writer that you use, that's a contractor who doesn't even work full time, they need to know about it too, because it's going to pack their work. And also even for yourself, it's going to force you to really take a step back and say, what did I actually learn from this? And to spend time being strategic as opposed to responding to what you tactically hear in these interviews. The strategic process of research is so much more than just conducting a bunch of interviews, hearing a bunch of to-dos and tactics, and then being like, okay, now we're going to go do those things. There's also a moment where you take a step back and you're like, what's the bigger picture here? What's the overall vision? What was the overall lessons learned and insights gathered from what we just did? Even the stuff that maybe we're kind of burying our heads in the sand about. And this is really where qualitative research can help support your growth function. I cannot tell you how many times I have conducted research with um, founders and their teams, and they'd be like, okay, great, bye, thanks. And and I'm like, wait, 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 what's the plan for imp- implementation here? Where, like, okay, I've, I've given you guys... I've translated these insights, but now let's translate that into action. Like, where's the discussion? So in the last, I would say, year and a half, at the end of our research projects, now we have retrospectives. What did we hear? What did we learn? What's the plan for action here? And and also, what are some of the higher level strategic things this is making you think about? Is it making you think about your go-to-market strategy? Is it making you think about how, how you're going to better retain customers, your product strategy, et cetera? And it's... Of course, we can't force teams to do this type of, you know, deep thinking together, but our projects tend to be a catalyst for having those conversations. So if you are conducting research, whether you're hiring us to do it or whether you are doing it yourselves, make sure that you have that retrospective, both for the executive level and then also for the team level, because getting everyone aligned around the research, making it really clear that there is a source of truth here and that there is a voice of customer, it's going to, one, open up a whole lot of more doors and a lot more opportunities. Two, it's going to help clarify some of those tactical projects that you take on. But three, it's going to support your strategic process. And every year and every quarter when you guys, you know, put your nose to the groundstone, you start thinking about, okay, what projects are we going to take on? I don't know. I'm not sure. You'll be able to use this research and say, well, actually, you know, we did this research, you know, a, a couple months back, but there were like four other things that came up. What if we dug deeper into those? What if we looked at those? And using that as the source for how you think about growth opportunity. Okay, thank you so much for joining me today. This was this was a blast. And uh, yeah, hopefully this list of things helps with identifying the patterns or the mistakes, so to speak, in your own research and ways to correct it, ways to identify it, ways to overcome it. Happy interviewing. And as always, let me know if you have any questions. Y'all know I'm I'm an open book. Happy to answer any questions you guys have about this. All right. Thanks again, y'all. As always, thank you so much for spending this time with me. To learn more about how to reach your growth goals for your SaaS business, head on over to demandmaven.io. You'll find all kinds of free resources, articles, and content. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already, and I'll see you on the next one.